Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off! And here we are. Here we are. Um, um, here we're, this is another edition of uh, Fan Club. Um, Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Uh, my name is Nick Helm, and this is Nathaniel Metcalf. There we go. And um, we are not live. Uh, we're, 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 <laughs> no, we're, we're as live. We're as live. We're alive. We're Aslan. Um, <laughs> uh, we're not Aslan. There we go. Nice little box of tissues as my shoulder. Um, I'll tell you what. This is fan club. I'll tell you what. <laughs> um, so, um, I, I am sort of like obsessive about uh, trying to finish off my living room. <laughs> it looks very nice. And it, it, it quite well, you know, I mean, it, it, the viewers won't be able to see this, our listeners won't be able to see this, because they're not viewers, is that but you've got quite a nice um, composition. You're quite nicely framed. <laughs> right. Well, this is my study. This is where <laughs> this is where, this is where I come to um, study. Right. Um, and my living room is in the other room. So um, I bought. I've got a cowboy, country and western themed living room. Sort of. There's some horror stuff in there as well, and some science fiction stuff. But it's mainly cowboy stuff. And um, and I've got sort of like. An Art Deco bedroom. Um, and so I bought a uh, tissue box. <laughs> uh, like a cover, like a tissue coverer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, very old-fashioned now, doesn't it? Very old-fashioned. But all the kids these days use handkerchiefs. Um, <laughs> it um, reminds me of those dollies that... The, uh, the toilet on toilet rolls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've got. I had one of those upstairs, and um, they only take the square boxes <laughs> from uh, the square cube boxes of tissues. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I miss. And then, I, and then, I'm not drinking. I haven't drank in over a month, uh, and. Um, Still waiting for the benefits of that to kick in. I still feel I'm so tired all the time. Uh, like I'm like exhausted. As soon as I wake up, I feel like I can go straight back to sleep again. Um, uh, I've just changed my diet because the first month of not drinking and uh, smoking, um, I ate a lot of cake. So I've changed, and I maybe that was. A cause of my tiredness because I would have like huge sugar crashes, but now I'm sort of like eating relatively. Yeah, I'm eating like meats and vegetables at the moment, and I think it's the all aim... weird at the minute though. I mean, you know, there's nothing really to get up for and things, is there? Like I can kind of, I don't feel tired, but I can kind of, I'm sort of sleeping in more out of a kind of boredom and to make the days go quicker than I am being tired and things. Well, not drinking, it's difficult because you don't know when the day ends. 
at least when you drink, you're sort of like, <laughs> you pass out. <laughs> but with this, it's like, oh, I guess I've got to decide to go to bed. And, like, not drinking, a few times I've been like, oh, well, I should go to bed now because it'll get tomorrow um, here quicker. And that just feels like an incredibly depressive existence. You think It's like that Frank Sinatra quote, quote you know, I feel sorry for people that don't drink because when they wake up, that's the best they're going to feel all day. <laughs> it, and um, and it's sort of like that. If you don't, if you're not drinking, it's kind of like you go. Oh, I guess I'll go to bed now. <laughs> yeah, but you've done it at a funny time. It's a particularly odd period of history that that we're going through. I think it's um, you know, what to not be drinking. Well, yeah, but also like to feel like tired and to go. Oh, you've got the side when to go to bed and things. I guess that stuff will get better, won't it, as things kind of improve. But sure, sure. I think it's just like a, a maybe it's like a period of um, um, adjustment. Adjustment, yes. But anyway, so um, so I've, even though I'm not drinking, I still find myself at like two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, almost drunkenly. Uh, buying stuff online, as if I were drinking, but I'm not. <laughs> and uh, I got. You don't a, have the excuses now when they turn up. I don't. Um, uh, but it also means that um, it's quite a relief that it wasn't just alcohol that was making me buy all this stuff. It is like uh, it's probably like a medical thing. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, so the other day I got a porcelain. Uh, T- oh, uh, cube-shaped um, tissue box coverer uh, with a cowboy on it. That arrived. Okay. Um, through Amazon, because I don't sell them at my local shop, I bought a bunch of cube-shaped uh, tissue uh, boxes, and they sent me 12. Um, so now I've got uh, about three for every room in the house. Uh, this room isn't big enough, really, to have three boxes of tissues in. Uh, so, I don't know. I've just got tissues everywhere at the moment. I didn't have to open them all at once, but I've got no storage. That's part of the problem with this flat. There's no storage. So, there is now. I like that you have this cowboy theme living room, even though it's a bit mixed now. But it almost feels that you've now started buying things that aren't even, like that you don't need to have in the house anyway. No. Well, you have to sort of think, you have to sit down and think, you know. <laughs> you go, well, what is it? And this isn't stuff that a cowboy would have, you understand? No, it isn't. <laughs> this is stuff that... This is stuff that someone doing a... And I, I suppose one day I could open a cowboy-themed restaurant. Yes. Um, I've got a cowboy-themed... Um, Napkin holder. <laughs> I've got a cowboy themed um, candlestick holders. Mm-hmm. I've got salt and pepper shakers. I've got several. I've got two sets of salt and pepper shakers. Two sets of candlestick holders. Um, I've got, you know, cowboy themed. Um, you just have to sit down and think about like a, um, a, a tea towel holder. Uh, it's not just sort of like stuff that holds um, 
rags. What or kind dishes. of seat holder is it? Is it like a? It's not. Is it one of the ones that's like an anus that you kind no. of put your finger into and push your push your uh, tea towel through? Um, no, I use a real anus for that. <laughs> is it a cowboy though? Um, it's just, yeah, it's some stuffed uh, the stuffed anus of uh, Wild Bill Hickok. <laughs> <laughs> probably would have wanted. He was a showman, wasn't he? Of course, to the last. So he, he probably would have enjoyed that being on display. It was what he would have wanted. Owl poked up his ass. Um. Uh, no, um, what have I got? I've got a horse's head that I bought from Snooper's Paradise in Brighton. It's a blue horse's head with a uh, ring in its mouth. Um, and I think it's basically, I think it was it's designed for actually tying up a horse. Oh, right. So you sort of like screw it onto a wall and then you kind of like tie a horse up to it. But um, I don't really know what it's for. But... Um, I've got it above my sink. It's really fucking heavy. Uh, and I've got it above my sink um, and I've put a tea towel through it. But it's just like, I've got like cowboy decorative plates on my wall. It's just like, you know, it's a project. I've got two wagon wheel coffee tables. You know, one of them is like the wagon wheel coffee table from when Harry met Sally. So it's sort of like a tribute to when Harry met Sally as much as it is to cowboys. And I've it's got a very nice coffee with, table as well. It's very nice, you know. Um and uh and it always annoys me when Harry met Sally when um uh Bruno Kirby is really fighting for that coffee table and then uh it transpires that he's the only one that likes it. You know? Carrie Fish doesn't like it. Meg Ryan doesn't seem to be too fussed. Bill, Billy Billy Crystal doesn't like it. In the end, it, it turns out. I think, you know, it's a fucking nice... It's a nice... But I've got another one as well, which is flat-topped with wagon wheels at the side. Um, so, you know, it's an obsession. But now I have a, uh, a, a tissue... Uh, oh, were you, what did you search for? Were you looking for a tissue holder? Yeah. Right, Okay. So you put in eBay or something, cowboy-themed tissue holder. Yeah, I was on Etsy. I found two. One of them was really, really expensive, but it was gorgeous. It was, like, made of leather, and it had, um, like, a cowboy belt and guns on it. And you literally just (laughs) cover up a box of tissues and then poke the tissues through, and it was, like, 70 quid. (laughs) And I was like... I haven't I haven't worked enough to have that much disposable income, but ah, oh, my finger did hover. Uh, and the one I got was I don't know, it's like this this porcelain thing, and it wasn't it wasn't seventy quid. Um, I can't remember how much it was there. Okay, it wasn't seventy quid, but um, and it arrived, and it's never as good as the picture looks. When you see these pictures of these tissue covers, you think, oh my god, I must, yeah. I must have that. Yeah, whenever I see some, you know, a porcelain, cowboy porcelain tissue cover on Etsy, whenever it turns up, I'm always disappointed. It's never, it's never what you imagine in your yeah. head. Yeah. I, part, of, part of the skill of it is also sort of like tying it into another obsession of yours. 
you know. So like the wagon wheel coffee table and when Harry met Sally, you go, yeah, that's great. That's like a little nod to people that get it, right? You go, is that because the Cowboys? And you go, no, it's not. It's because of when Harry met Sally. Um, and uh, I've got my eye on a commemorative uh, Roy Rogers plate. Oh, yeah. And uh, and he's great. He's got this lovely, brightly coloured cowboy shirt. And uh, his horse Trigger was his horse Trigger. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so he's got it's him and Trigger and they're on this plate. And there's a, a, it's lined with uh, 24 karat gold. <laughs> um, and it's very expensive. And, um, when you and say you've got to buy on it, what platform is it on? I think that's on eBay. And it, I'm sort of like, um, I'm not going to buy it. But are you worried that any of our listeners now might be trying to bid against you or push the price up? No, it's a buy it. It's a, it's a buy it only. So okay. it's not like um, it's. Uh, is it? I think it's a buy it only. I was I was going to go for a John Wayne one, but they're all really expensive. And also, I've heard John Wayne. Um, what did I watch? I watched um, the Dick Cavett show. Have you ever seen the Dick Cavett show? seen odd clips of them on YouTube and things. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, I thought I was bad at interviewing people, and then you watch Dick Cavett, and then it's like, oh, it's it's all it's just it's just cringe inducing. But there's so many clips of it. Um, for our listeners, if you don't know, who Dick Cavett is obviously he's one of the guests uh, at the dinner party at the end of Beetlejuice. Um, but Dick Cavett was a 70s chat show host. And who did I see him interview? I saw him interviewing... Um, oh, what actor was it? It was... It was interviewing... Oh, it was Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas made a bunch of films with John Wayne. And Kirk Douglas and John Wayne had very different uh, politics. And um, he sort of, like... And in the interview, it transpires that John Wayne was kind of, like, saying it's the Indians or it's the Native Americans' fault uh, for having their land taken away from them. Um, so, jo- so, I, so I was sort of looking for this commemorative John Wayne play, um, and it's sort of like tongue-in-cheek, sort of ironic, but he is also sort of like the most iconic cowboy, really, and then, uh, you know, fictional cowboy, and then uh, I decided, actually, I don't want to have... John Wayne up there. So I thought, hey, if it's Roy Rogers, what does that tie into, Nathaniel? Just cowboys, right? But not specific. No. It was a very famous Roy Rogers reference in pop culture. Roy Rogers. Uh, I don't know. Let me know. Die Hard. Oh, yes, of course. Yippee-ki-yay. That's him, isn't it? So Roy Rogers is the guy that says Yippie Kaye, and um, and I thought if you if I could get a Roy Rogers commemorative plate, I'm waiting I'm waiting to see if any of the others turn up. But yeah, so this is the thing. Um, all I really need, I've got my eye on a kitchen roll holder, um, <laughs> which is basically a long piece of wood and a short piece of wood, and then you use you, you put the kitchen roll on the long piece of wood, and then you use a short piece of wood to tear off the kitchen roll. Um, but um, you know, that, I think that's the only the, that's the only thing that I really actually need now is the kitchen roll holder and the plate. And then and is there uh, one which is cowboy themed? Uh, they do sell them. Um, uh, <laughs> <they're> <laughs> they don't just have.
have to be cowboy themed. They could just be rustic. It could be the sort of thing that a cowboy might have in his or her kitchen. Yeah, for um, his kitchen roll. For, his, for the for the cowboy that has everything, uh, here's a cowboy themed kitchen roll holder. Um, I so, heard Bruce Dern, the actor Bruce Dern, was telling a story that when he was a young man, he did a film, I think, with uh, John Wayne, and I think he was like it was when John Wayne was getting older. And in this film, I think Bruce Dern is this young guy, and I think he shoots um, John Wayne in the back. And I think it was the first film where John Wayne ever got shot. And after he did it, John Wayne, I think, said to Bruce Dern, like, you know, um, you're going to be the most hated man in America for shooting me. I'm like America's hero. And Bruce Dern said, uh, yeah, but all the college kids are going to love it. So I think that's the kind of the, the the switching of changing of generations there for John Wayne. Bruce Dern sort of saw it as this opportunity that he was actually going to be this super cool guy because he shot John Wayne, whereas John Wayne assumed that Bruce Dern would be the hate, most hated man in America. As it turned out, neither of those things are particularly true because I don't know what film it's from. So um, it's particularly no. famous. Could Natalie look it up because oh, yeah. what I think it, I think it'll be I think it'll be really famous. Um, like it'll be one that you've heard of. Um, yeah, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, so I like cowboys, um, but what I would say is it's called the Cowboys, nineteen seventy-two. Um, in nineteen seventy-two, later in the career of John Wayne, um, yeah, that film isn't it? Is it his last film that's called? Is it called The Shootist? Which is with Ron Howard. It's Ron Howard and John Wayne together. Really? Star- starring alongside it. I think that's his last film. It's another the shootest. One. What's the one that he did with uh, James Stewart? I thought that was the shootest. Oh, maybe that is. What's that one called? The shooter or the shoot? Uh, not... This is this is this is a cowboy film that I've got that I downloaded about three years ago. That's got John. Wayne. I was just like John Wayne and James Stewart. How could you? How could you resist? And I've managed for <laughs> for about three or four years, all my entire life, really. Um, what's that one called, Natalie? Um, uh, yeah. So uh, while we're on the subject, then um, oh, the last film, the shootest, Ron Howard was in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally 1976. Um, is it, so John Wayne filmed near the um, nuclear testing sites, didn't he? Did he? Where, where did I they... Thought, uh, well, they filmed in the middle of the desert, didn't they? That's oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Was it like dropped, the Valley or one of those places? I think that's how he got cancer. Oh, really? I think that's one of... It was it's either him or Steve McQueen. It's one of the contributing factors of, you know, their, their death was they filmed out in the desert where they did the, where they tested the bombs. Um, and this might just be something that I have made up. I don't think I have made up, but I think that that's, that's part of the truth. It was still very radioactive where they were filming. Um, but yeah, uh, towards the end of his life, I mean, I think he got like a lifetime achievement Oscar, or he's handing someone an Oscar, and he wore um, a uh, what do you call it, a scuba suit underneath his tuxedo because he'd lost so much weight. Oh wow! So sad. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, so this week, speaking of uh, the old and the new, this week, I think last Friday on BBC One, they showed Young Guns, um, which I've not seen, I don't know, maybe 20 years. I My sister was, re- when in the early 90s, my sister was huge into Bon Jovi. Um, and she also, she was like one of the, she, not just Bon Jovi, but she um, bought the... Uh, the um, uh, the conqueror of the 220 film crew members, 91 developed cancer during their lifetime, while 46 died from it. The conqueror, yeah. And that's the one where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan, I think. Oh my god, and that's sort of like one of his worst films as well. <laughs> Many suspected that filming in Utah and surrounding locations near nuclear test sites was to blame. Yeah, there you okay. go. Funny enough, as well, mentioning young guns is that that was on my list of things to talk about. I watched it on telly last week. Oh, did you? Mm, I thought your face light up. Um, So what was the one that he did with James Stewart then, Natalie? Um, So, yeah, so Young Guns, right. Okay, so my sister, when I was growing up, my sister was really big into um, Bon Jovi. um, And uh, she's also bought Alice Cooper trash. Um because it was sort of like all of that era. If you didn't know anything else about Alice Cooper, you, he had an album out called Trash, which was sort of like out along with all of like the Motley Crue's and the Bon Jovi's and the Aerosmith albums. And it kind of was one of his comeback albums. And it sort of like stood alone. And you would just assume that that was the sort of stuff that Alice Cooper did based on that album. Um he has like the same hair. It's like all big and puffy and like uh, like Bon Jovi and everything like that. So it's kind of like that era. My sister was, and then maybe like a year later, she was like into Take That and Boyzone, which was sort of crazy. Uh, but she used to, be, she, you know, um, she used to go to like record shops in uh, Hatfield or Watford, and you know, um, buy kind of like eighties, uh, nineties heavy metal albums there. Um, and so Young Guns 2 was something that we watched uh, growing up or when I was, like, an early teenager. Was there a song, Blaze of Glory? Blaze of Glory, incredible song. Um, but um, so I saw Young Guns, the original, much later. Like, Young Guns 2 felt like it was, like, a standalone film, mm. barely a sequel, because it's kind of, like, its own story. And then and then years later, you see Young Guns. And I've never really been 100% on board with Young Guns because it just feels so gritty and dirty and uh, and grimy, I described it as on Twitter. But watching it again with literally no real memory of the of Young Guns 2 um, and watching it as like a standalone film, I thought it was great. What Me about too. you? Same. I, I remember liking it a lot when I was a kid, but I've avoided watching it because no one, no one talks about it anymore, and it feels like one of those films that's going to be a bit dated. But like you say, I saw Young Guns two at the cinema before I saw Young Guns, and Young Guns two is a twelve, I think, and Young Guns is like an eighteen. Yeah, and so it was a kind of it was a bit more of a, uh, I guess, a more mainstream sequel anyway. But yeah, like you say, Young Guns two feels almost like. From certainly from the same series, but obviously when they're making Young Guns, they no one's envisioning Young Guns too. 
So this is what this is what I found interesting. By the way, yes, James Stewart was in the shootist, but he was. But the man who shot Liberty Valance is the one that I haven't watched. Um, uh, yeah, of course, I've not seen which that. Is John either. Wayne and John Wayne and uh, 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 James Stewart. So, um, so I watched Young Guns on the Friday night, and then Young Guns Two on the on the Saturday afternoon. And as two films, it's weird because everything's about trilogies now. Mm. And they used to just make two films. They used to make, like, here's part one, here's part two, and then that's that. And if you think about it, like most films, you know, Terminators worked best as two films. The Aliens films worked as two films. Um, uh, what was the other one? That was it? The Godfathers, you know, it's kind of like... And you get, like, Young Guns 1, Young Guns 2. And Young Guns 1 is really gritty, um... But it really, literally, only tells half the story. In a in a way that was kind of like you must have um, you, you, you must have um, known. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you've left enough story to do a sequel, but this is kind of like a weird. Anyway, it's weird because like Young Guns One and Young Guns Two. Very different films, but they perfectly complement each other. It's kind of like there's stuff that works. The cast is incredible in Young Guns One, and oh. the cast that dies in Young Guns One, you do sort of miss in Young Guns Two. But they do make up for it in Young Guns Two. You don't get Charlie Sheen in Young Guns Two, but you do get Christian Slater in yeah. Young Guns Two. Arkansas Dave Rudabar. That's what he's called. Yeah, and, I know um, that's in my head from uh, thirty years ago. <laughs> I mean, Young Guns 2, <laughs> Young Guns 2 is fantastic, right? And I always assumed that this was sort of like a kid's retelling. It's like a teen movie, kid's retelling. Yeah, like the first one is gritty and grimy and all this stuff. The second one, as soon as you start watching it, it's absolutely slick as fuck. Um, there's less sort of uh, blood. It's still very violent. There's less blood. You've got James Coburn, who turns up in it, who played Pat Garrett in Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. You, so it's kind of like you've got like the old West turning it down to the new generation. Yeah. Um, they are two of the best cowboy films I've uh, I've I've seen. I'm really impressed with Young Guns. It feels like the only criticism I have of it it has that thing when it starts, which I always find makes it seem like a TV movie when you've still got the credits appearing over action. Yeah, and the story started, but your credits are still going on. I always find that a bit distracting. But, I mean, it just straight away where you go, oh, of course, yeah, of course it's Terence Stamp. And then um, Jack Palance turns up and you go, of course it's Jack Palance and Terence Stamp. And, and you just sort of, I just forget all these people are in it. And well, it, that's, the, that's the thing, because it was so weird, because I was talking about Terence Stamp. Is it, who's the, who's the reality TV guy? Rylance, is that his name? Rylan. Rylan, right. And he's yeah. doing that advert at the moment about car insurance or something. Yes, he is, yeah, yeah. And his beard is of such a colour, and, you know, he just looks like General Zod, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not the look he's been going for, but every time he... Look, though, to be fair. It's a classic it. look. It's an absolute classic look. So every time he, Rylan turns up, I'm just like, oh, look, it's General Zod, right? Um, <laughs> and so uh, my girlfriend doesn't know who General Zod is, right? <laughs> so then I have to put, find a picture of... Terence Stamp as General Zod, and, you know, we're all in agreement that, yes, you know, <laughs> she doesn't really have a choice. <laughs> but we're all in agreement that he looks like General Zod. And then we're watching Young Guns, and then all of a sudden it's like, it's fucking... It's not <laughs> Ryland! Um, uh, so it's... Um, 
It's, it's, I, yeah, it's, it has, it does. I've never been able to put my finger on why I don't like credits going over action, but I guess that's it. It does feel kind of like TV movie. Yeah, it's something I always think it's always a bit of a shame. Like, just keep that out of it. But um, Emilio Estevez is like an actual psychopath in Young Guns. And in Young Guns 2, they sort of smooth it out where they just tweak it, really. It it doesn't feel like they've watered it down, Mm -hmm. but it feels like he is more of like a rebel in Young Guns 2 as opposed to a psychopath. In Young Guns 1, his whole team are like, what? you know, he basically fucks them. He gets them... he, he, um, uh, He... he starts killing people, and then they're all wanted men, yeah. and they're they like, start, "Oh!" They start as so that they're they're, um, they're kind of given badges, aren't they, and things? So they're kind of on. They're allowed to kind of uh, uh, avenge Terence Stamp legally, but they're then deputized. they kind of yeah, yeah get deputised. Um, and that's the other thing about it was that really struck by like people talk about Emilio Estevez now almost like a punchline. I was watching it going, "He's so great in it. He's, He's a good real in- movie star." He's good in Young Guns. In Young Guns 2, he is absolutely phenomenal. He's just brilliant, you know. Um, and it's not... It's If you look at the Emilio Estevez in Young Guns and Young Guns 2, and you compare it to what he was doing two years earlier in The Breakfast Club, or St. Elmo's Fire, where he is sort of like this teen actor, and then he goes on to do Young... It's a genuinely brilliant, like... All-time great performance. And I the younger... almost like I quite happily, like, when you watch it, you go, no reason we shouldn't be watching this guy still. Young, no well, this absolutely. Guy. Um, I think I'm one of the few people that went to see Mission Impossible because I wanted to see Amelia Estevez, you know. That's um, that his comeback. That's what we all thought was his comeback that movie. That was big comeback movie, uh, Mission <laughs> Impossible. Um, but I absolutely... But, but what's bonkers about that is that it was only, uh, it was only a few years after... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, he did Young yeah. Guns 2, he did Lethal Weapon 1. Loaded. Then he did Loaded Weapon 1, and then he did, um, and, then, and then he did Mission Impossible, and it's kind of like... Yeah, the drop-off was swift. He had all the Mighty Ducks movies, but by the time he was doing straight-to-video Mighty Ducks... I don't understand, really. He, but he's a director now, and um, um, uh, he makes critically acclaimed movies. Oh, does he? Oh, good for him. He made Bobby... Remember that Bobby film that was about uh, the assassination of um, uh, oh, Robert, yeah, Robert yeah. Kennedy? And didn't he do a film recently that's about, like, that he starred in as well, that, but apparently made no money whatsoever, which was about... Um, I remember seeing clips from it, and it's it's this idea that he's working in a library and he kind of brings the homeless people in his community into the library over winter. Maybe. I know, a couple of films ago, he made a film with his dad, uh, Martin Sh- Michael Sheen. Obviously, Michael Sheen, um, uh, Martin Martin Sheen, Michael Sheen, not part of the Sheen dynasty. Um, we need to play a song, but um, uh, but we can still talk about this afterwards, right? Yeah, of course we can. Yeah, just to say, uh, I went to the Tower of London, and oh, yeah. uh, they were saying that. Um, uh, they were doing like Shakespeare adaptations, famous Shakespeare adaptations, um, and uh, one of one of the people. This was a while ago. One of the people that they had a picture of was uh, Michael Sheen, but they credited him as Martin Sheen. And I added the Tower of London, and Michael Sheen, and maybe Martin Sheen. <laughs> and I added all three of them and said something's got to be 
Done. And you got to sort it out between us. You got to sort it out because, but it was like the the um, the thing had been on the the the, the show, whatever it was. The what do you call it? The the exhibition. The exhibition had been on for like months, like nine months, almost a year, and no one had gone. That's Michael Sheen, not Martin Sheen. Do you know what I mean? Ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I think that's ridiculous. I was like the first one to like flag it up. I'm very surprised. And if that... not, it suggests that they don't care. Or that no one had read it. Hmm. Or that nobody knew. What a world. People, people are looking at a picture of Michael Sheen and thinking, yeah, yeah he's, changed a bit. he's changed a bit from uh, Apocalypse Now and Badlands. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's believable. He's looking very young. Um, absolutely crazy. Anyway, we'll play a song. Don't worry, guys. We're going to talk about young guns after this. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Hello, and we're back. Yeah. Um, what? If you... Oh, no. That's oh, dear. That's it. We've got DJ, we've got MC Metcalf in the house. Um... That song's really weird. Um, that was Leather Boots by Alice Cooper. That's on a really great album called Flush the Fashion, which was made in 1980, which is like his new wave album. And um, ah. that song goes straight into Aspirin Damage, I think. Um, and it's weird hearing that song in isolation without it going straight into Aspirin Damage. Um, um, it's sort of like, I, I sort of took it as a very sort of 50s throwback kind of thing, but it's interesting to hear it in that context. To me, it was a bit like, you know, it's very much in the Shaken Stevens vibe. <laughs> 50s throwback movies. But actually, when you hear it like that, you go, oh, yeah, I guess you can hear it in that kind of sort of new wavy way as well. It's got that... Um... Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a new wave album, and it's surrounded by sort of like new wave songs, but I suppose in isolation it could sound a bit... Obviously, he was not just influenced by... The new wave. He was obviously highly influenced by Shaken Stevens mm-hmm. at some point. I imagine. I imagine who wasn't. Um, right. We get so back to the... on? say again. We get Shaken Stevens on. I mean, I I was such I a huge, huge. Next week, brilliant. We've got him on next week. Uh, we're going to have to bump. Um... <laughs> who are we bumping? Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton. Yeah, she's got to come on. It's worth it though. And Daniel Kalu, Kalu, Kaluuya. Kaluuya. Yeah. Kalu, 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 Kalu. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. It's not a bit... It's easy to say Kaluuya, isn't it? But it's not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so, back to Young Guns. Mm-hmm. Right, so the first film is this gritty film. The second film is this really slick film. And between them, they tell the whole story. I watched a documentary about Billy the Kid afterwards because... Um, I really don't know anything about Billy the Kid other than his name. And I just assumed that the uh, Young Guns movies were sort of like a... They're not sanitised. They're very violent. But I felt like they were like a a teen-friendly retelling of them. Mm. But in actual fact, aside from a couple of kind of like who dies where and uh, place names... Um, it's really accurate. Mm. 
So well, I think that's how they're remembered as well, aren't they? As sort of very teen-friendly cowboy movies. Whereas when you watch them, you go, they're not really. They're, it's, like, it's like a proper, you know, proper kind of action movie. It's bonkers to think that um, that they did a sequel to this really bloody, gory film. It was made for teenagers. It was a 12, the sequel was. Hmm. And it got Bon Jovi on the soundtrack. And it's kind of like, it's... You know, do you know what I mean? It was like, this is for teens. Mm. And it's kind of like, which teens? <laughs> it's, it's a historic, like, so historically, it's incredibly accurate. The one thing that they, that they uh, in the first one, you've got Terence Stamp, who I guess is in his 40s, um, uh, when he's, and he's kind of like um, the guy that takes all of these kids in and teaches them, you know, to be, um, Cowboys, like cowhands, to like look after his beef trade. Um, it's not a euphemism. <laughs> uh, he he gets these young guys in, he takes them off the street, and he stops them from being criminals, and um, he teaches them how to sort of like become farmers. And in the film, Terence Stamp is in his forties, and he's this older gentleman. He's taking in these kids, teaching them how to breed and all this other stuff. But actually, in reality, Billy the Kid was 20 when that happened. Um, the Terrence Stamp character was uh, 24. And the Kiefer Sutherland character, Doc, was 30. He was 31 or 30. So he was actually older than the Terrence Stamp character. But, but almost apparently in almost every retelling of the Billy the Kid story... That character is always um, significantly older than everyone. Mm. In actual fact, he was like bang in the middle of all their ages. Um, Billy the Kid was really young, he, but like even the even the part when Billy the Kid has um, a photo taken of him. Um, uh, so the media rest of his is leaning against the wall, and he has a photo taken of himself, uh, and then he tries to give it as a gift to Terence Stamp. And you go, you know, you just assume that all of this stuff is um, like movie fabrication, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you're watching it, and uh, and I don't know why you would assume that, but you're just watching it, and you just assume that none of it is historically accurate, and it all is. There's a, the, that's one of the only few. Of course, it is. It's one of the only few photos of Billy the Kid in existence, is of him leaning against the wall with a rifle. Uh, and they recreated it for the film. They recreated it so that he's holding the gun in the wrong hand, which is kind of weird. But um, but uh, but one of the reasons everyone think, thought that Billy the Kid was left-handed, and it's because back in the day, uh, photos were flipped over, uh, so he was uh, he was right-handed. Um, but yeah, it's just like this. Uh, so they they all of these details, even to the point where. Uh, just before, spoiler alert, Terence Stamp gets murdered. Uh, all of the all of the boys run off. It looks like a little bit convenient. You know, Terence Stamp is on a cart and then all the boys run off and they chase Pheasant, I think they are. Uh, and then he goes to Billy the Kid, you can join them. And you know it's sort of like, it's ominous. Um, but that really happened. They all ran off to hunt turkey. It wasn't pheasant, it was turkey. I don't know why you would change that. Maybe there weren't any turkeys nearby. But, <laughs> but it's just like little things like that where it's kind of... Um, where they really they really stuck to the deal. I was really surprised. And then 
And it's stuff like the Jack Palance character, who, again, is like Old West. He, he made all the Westerns. And they've got all these new guys coming along. So they put Jack Palance in, um, in the movie. I think one of Jack Palance's sons is in it. And also one of John Wayne's kids, uh, John Wayne's son, is in it as well. Um, uh, and Tom Cruise is in it. Tom Cruise showed up on set of Young Guns. Uh, when Charlie comes out of the house at the end, when the house is on fire, yeah. and Charlie comes out and he shoots, the fourth person he shoots is, jo- is Tom Cruise. Ah. Um, so for anyone that's watching, uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. <laughs> it's easy to miss. I just loved every. I loved all of the characters. I, th- oh. I like the Charlie. I like. Um, I like Stinky uh, Steve. Is it Stinky Steve? Um, who is? Uh, what's his name now? Uh, uh, Casey Samasco. Is it? Is it Dylan McDermott though? Oh, they're both in it, aren't they? Dermot it, Mulroney. It's Dermot Mulroney. Yeah. Um, who's a good-looking guy. And he plays, he plays it like filthy. Um, yeah, I just think the cast is so good in Young Guns. I was because really, I haven't seen that film. God, it must be well years and years, twenty five years at least. And um, and it was like every scene in it is so memorable. It's got, it's like it, it feels like all those movies from that era that I must have seen over the time. Every every scene is like, oh, it's this bit now. It's this bit already. It just feels like every every scene follows on, and I remembered every bit of it as it as it turned up, and just the kind of the sort of dread of it all as well, the kind of and knowing who was going to get killed next and everything, and just and how they're all really well defined as characters and everything. I thought, oh, it's just such for for a movie that like I just haven't revisited, and no one seems to think about it or talk about it in terms that are kind of favourable. Even you kind of assume that. I probably shouldn't watch that anymore because it's probably terrible. And just, like, I started watching it and was like, oh, right, yeah, of course, yeah, I forget Terrence Sampson, yeah, yeah. And you watch it for five minutes and then I was just completely sucked in and watched the whole thing. I mean, I've tried to watch Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid a few times and I've never got all the way through it. It's got Bob... It's got uh, James Coburn and Chris Christopherson as Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and then it's got Bob Dylan in it as a character. And it's sort of like... um, a 70s film about the death of the Old West. And it's made by... Which is weird, because it's Peckinpah, but it's kind of like... It's got people like Bob Dylan in it, and it's kind of... And Chris Christopherson, who are sort of hippies. Mm. And it's kind of like taking this kind of... Billy the Kid is like this drifter hippie guy, and uh, James Coburn is the Old West, and it's kind of talking about how the counterculture has kind of overtaken... Hollywood, I guess, and overtaken society, and um, and it's got. But I've just, I, I've never. Really, I'm going to give it another go now because I'm just obsessed with Billy the Kid. But um, uh, yeah, it's just in terms of like a western and a film and how easy it is to watch. I thought Young Guns One and Young Guns Two. I think they're both brilliant. I think they. I probably prefer Young Guns Two, but. Um, only just, and they're both high cards, Nathaniel. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, think that I wanted to see the second one after I watched the first one because I, I had that same feeling. The second one as well doesn't it have the framing sequence where he's an old man, right? Yeah, which is true. Which is a guy came came along in uh, the uh, I'm not sure if it's the fifties or the thirties, but a guy came along 
claiming to be Billy the Kid and uh, uh, met up with a lawyer and tried to convince everyone and then his case got thrown out of court and then he died like 30 days later, right? And they don't say in the film whether the guy, the old guy specifically, is Billy the Kid. They heavily imply it. But it's kind of, they've taken all of these historical things. Because you go, like, why wouldn't you use the framing device in the first film? They don't use the framing device in the first film. Then they're kind of coming up with a sequel. They talk about the death of Billy the Kid and the fact that... It, it's almost like you've thought about this without thinking about it. It's perfect. Yeah, well, it's also at the end of Young Guns, it has the kind of... Um, they kind of do a kind of, here's what happens to them all. And you yeah. go, well, there's a sequel, though. Why wouldn't you put that in the film, though? Why wouldn't Why wouldn't you put that in the film? Um, it's really it, it's so weird because the second film it's it's sort of tonally the same, but the way it feels it's kind of like it's so slick. It doesn't feel like it's watered down, even though it's like um, I guess it would have been a PG thirteen and the other one would have been an R, but yeah. it doesn't feel like. It's particularly watered down. I guess it's stuff like they've smoothed Billy the Kid down where he's really likable in the second one and in the first one he's more of a psychopath. But it's only real subtle changes like that. Um, they just, like, go... Per- I mean, I'm gushing a bit, but they go perfectly hand-in-hand hand with each other. And, like, Emilio Estevez is so good in... Um, he's great in the first one, but he's so good in the second one. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is brilliant in it. Uh, what's really weird about Emilio Estevez is when you were growing up, or when I was growing up, and you knew that Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen were brothers, and they were both the son of Martin Sheen, because of Charlie Sheen's hair, you would always go, oh, yeah, of course, Charlie Sheen and Martin Sheen. Charlie Sheen looks just like Martin Sheen. Yeah, But when you're older and you look back... Amelia Estevez looks so much like Martin Sheen, it's crazy. And Charlie Sheen sort of doesn't look much like him at all. Um, It's a bit, what were we saying? It's a bit like Sean and Julian Lennon, where they both look like John, but they don't look like each other. And maybe it's like one of those scenarios. But I would say that Charlie Sheen got his hair and Amelia Estevez got his fucking face. He looks exactly like him. Um, It's such a good performance. They're so entertaining they're so they like what I'm saying is you've got classic westerns like Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and this film kind of in a way does it. These film, these two films, they do it better. Well, I think there is there is an element to that which does seem slightly sacrilegious because I, as a kid, I never really again I, I think probably off the back of Young Guns, I really like Billy the Kid and the idea of Billy the Kid and westerns and the kind of westerns that were coming out in that era. I guess a couple of years after that, you would have had. Tombstone, which is another very entertaining Western film. So you kind of feel like you like Westerns, but it took me... I really had to push through a lot of Western, older Westerns before I started to like them again. Because like, you'd almost find this... I used to find them very slow. And even now, the kind of John Ford Westerns, I kind of struggle with a lot more than, like, a Howard Hawks one or something. Sure. I think kind of go, right, this isn't... The Howard Hawks ones feel more modern. And, and I think for more, that's almost why modern audiences, I think, do like stuff like the Spirit Westerns do feel much closer to to reality in a funny way than any oh, of the I, kind of older I, westerns do. I would definitely say, aside from the Searchers, my favourite westerns would be either the Spaghetti Westerns or Once Upon a Time in the West, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dance with Wolves, I think, is amazing. Mm. Um, what I'd say about it, when it comes to like the really classic ones, I do find them like quite difficult to push through. I'm going to definitely. 
uh, watched some more. I've devoted my entire living room to it, so it's a bit weird that I haven't. You know, but um, but I just think that I, th- I think they're really interesting, and also all of this cowboy stuff. You know, uh, Wyatt, uh, Billy the Kid, um, Dancing with the Wolves, all of this stuff. It took place over a thirty-year period. You know, it, it, it wasn't like a huge period in time. Um, we've both outlived the amount of... We're older than the entire period of the, of the time that cowboys were around, you know. They've been making cowboy films for 120 years, which is four times longer than the cowboy period even existed. It's sort of, sort of crazy. What I would say is there's a scene where Jack Palance is drinking in a bar... Uh, and um, uh, I think Kiefer Sutherland is watching through a window from outside the saloon, and it's all lit by candlelight, and it just feels so authentic. It feels um, mm-hmm. uh, just the dirt on the ground and on the on their clothes, um, the, uh, the the way it's lit, just everything feels so much more authentic, even more authentic than something like Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, which is very kind of like... Um, it's got like very warm palette to, to the way it's, it's filmed. When stuff is like lit by candlelight and torches and stuff in Unforgiven, it's like all red and brown and orange. And in Young Guns, it just feels really pale and bleak, as if it is a room that is lit by candle. I mean, it's just. Um, I just think it's. It feels. More, it was dismissed as kind of like a Brat Pack cowboy movie. And when you go back and rewatch it, it just feels so authentic and, uh, uh, and like, and like real, you know, in a way that a lot of, um, a lot of Westerns kind of, especially classic Westerns were obviously kind of like, oh, I'm wearing a brightly colored, uh, cowboy shirt and a pristine hat. And this, you know, all of their, all of their hats are all beaten up. Well, that's the kind of joke of it, isn't it? In um, that you, they managed to do that in um, Back to the Future Three, that they think he's kind of going out to the yeah. doctor, sending him into this sort of fifties version of uh, the West. But actually, in the movies we've had since, we kind of know it's not like that. So we kind of get this much more weirdly authentic version in a in a essentially a sci-fi action sci-fi comedy movie than they would have got in most. Yeah other movies in the 50s up to that point. But the, but, but the fact that there's a there's a, a photo of Billy the Kid, several photos in existence of Billy the Kid, um, like three or four, I've done all this stuff. I mean, I've got a story about this photo about Billy the Kid, but that's for another time. But um, uh, The other thing, but, Young Guns, is directed by Christopher Kane, isn't it? And it's Dean Kane's dad. Is it? Did he do the first one or the second one? First one. I think the second one is it. I think it's that. Is it that New Zealand director? What was he called? Uh, did a lot of action movies. Is he the guy who did Volcano? Who was that? Um, it may have been. I think Free Jack. Who was that guy? Didn't it? It was Free Jack. The guy who did Free Jack did the second Young Guns film, yeah. which also had me arrested, of his in it. Um, but there's these photos of Billy the Kid in existence, Jeff Murphy. There's these photos of Billy the Kid in existence, and then you go the crossover period between when they were making the 50s um, Roy Rogers movies, uh, James Stewart movies, John Wayne movies, and the invention of photography in like the 1870s, the, the, the mid to late 1800s. 
you know, the crossover period between when that happened, when cinema was invented, and when they were making, it's less than 100 years, and in some cases, it's like 40 years, mm. where cowboys were still around, and then they were making kind of like these uh, mythological movies about them, where everything was sanitised and cleaned up. And it's kind of like this, it's just, it's sort of, you know, it's like um, a relay race. We've got Billy the Kid having a photo and then this photo is like, passed along and then they're making films about him. And, you know, he's still like a, a, a pop culture... You know, he's one of the five people that Bill and Ted go back and get. Yes. Excellent adventure. Anyway, we've got to do some fan mail now. Um, uh, but, yeah, if, if you haven't seen the, uh, the Young Guns movies, they're... Fucking brilliant. I'd love yeah, to. I would, I would also recommend it. Really, really surprised me. Just like a proper stunning cast of people that are all at the top of their game. And then you've got like, and then it's really respectful to like um, his, history and Westerns in general, where you've got like people like James Coburn, uh, John Wayne's kid, uh, Jack Palance. They're all kind of like, they're, they're including all of that. And they're kind of like going, it's not like this ain't your dad's Western. It's kind of like, we this is a genuine attempt to make a western in the same time period that they were making films like Cobra and Predator and Commando. But it's not like this action movie. It's yeah, it's great. It's brilliant. And it's it's historically accurate from what I could gather. Anyway, here is the fan mail. Um well, uh, come in, Brian. Oh, thank you very much. How's it going? Oh, ah! Oh, right, I'm just finding me uh, sea legs with uh, just... Uh, here we go. Right, Nick and, Nick and Nathaniel. And Brian, and possibly Christopher Lee. I can't decide whether to start watching The X-Files or Buffy. Which do you suggest, Jason? Um, it's been it's been a long time since I've seen either of them. Um, I, but I reckon The X-Files probably stands up quite well, I suspect. I think the X-Files, the first series of the X-Files were sort of episodic and you could like watch them in uh, individual episodes. And then it got more complicated. <clears throat> and then Gillian Anderson got pregnant, so she wasn't in most of a series. She, uh, and then it got uh, too complicated. I just remember I used to watch it every week and then you I do. missed an episode. I think exactly the same thing happened to me. I don't think I ever saw the end of the X-Files. When, no. when, when it was Robert Patrick, I don't think yeah. I saw I, I just remember that it got to like about the third season or the fourth season and I missed an episode and when I came back I couldn't follow it and I didn't know what was going on. This is back in the day where if you didn't tape it, you couldn't see it. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I completely was just like, oh, you can't watch it week by week. You just have, you have to you have to watch things. You know what I mean? It, mm. it, it, it got too complicated so I just gave up. So I reckon X-Files because... You can give up after, like, one and a half seasons and then move on with your life. Or Buffy. People love Buffy. I've never really watched it. I had an ex-girlfriend that loved Buffy, and it kind of, you know what it's like, it taints it for you. Hi! Hi, guys! I finished Aunt Claudius the other day. I loved it. Uh, have you ever watched it? Do you think they should do a remake? Thanks, Anna. P.S. Have you ever thought about that? What an odd name Derek Jacoby is. Like, Jacoby is quite grand and theatrical, and Derek as well. Derek. Um, I've seen it. I love Aunt Claudius. I think it's brilliant. I think it's one of those, like, proper... Uh, it, it's almost, like, much better than you think it's going to be. Um... 
I saw the first few series of Game of Thrones, and then I never saw the end again. Um, but that's what that feels like. It's basically them doing a big budget I Claudius. It feels like a lot of Game of Thrones. I thought felt like a rip off of it. It just feels like it's very much in the same the same vein, and a lot of it felt like that's from my Claudius. You just take that from my Claudius. So I think they sort of have done, but that it, it's for for that you could probably do it again for the Game of Thrones generation, and everyone would think it was a rip off of that. I think. I think that that's the weird thing about Game of Thrones is that a lot of mum and dads really like it. In, in terms of our generation of mum and dads. Mm. My mum and dad love it. And um, and you kind of like go, really? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I don't think that you're into anything else that involves dragons. Mm. You know, you know, rape, murder, dragons. And it's kind of like, my mum does Game of Thrones jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> it's kind of like, all right. I, and well, I, thought, I think it's interesting that neither Nick nor I got really sucked into it and we even know people who are in it and I like I, I kind of liked what I saw of it but not I never got sucked into it in the way that most people seem to have and I never, guess we thought of the target audience yeah and never no, didn't get sucked into it in the way that my mum and dad got sucked into it you know they love it you know um, crazy anyway um, I think we're being told that we've got to play a song and get our guest on uh, right okay so a bit quicker we're not allowed to talk right we've got our uh, right, we'll do one more piece of fan mail and then, um, uh, can you open the chat? Oh, that's a weird one. Hi, Nick and Nat, how are you doing? What have you been watching recently? Uh, that's the show. I mean, what, what, okay. I've, I recently watched Crazy Rich Asians and loved it. Have you watched it? Henry Golden is so hot. Cheers, Emily. I've not seen it. No. Uh, no, cool. Hey Nick and Nat, are you fans of board oh, we'll watch it. Hey Nick and Nat, are you fans of board games? I used to love them when I was a child and since we're still in lockdown, I think it would be cool to start playing board games again. Which board games would you suggest thanks, Anthony? I, I am a fan of board games. My favourite board games are Scrabble and Monopoly. Uh, but um, I have recently been given a Highlander board game which um, it looks very complicated. Uh, but I will sit down and play it at some point. Maybe it's a lovely Valentine's treat uh, for my partner. Um, I'm not a big board gamesy person, um, but again, I do quite like a bit of a Monopoly or a Scrabble if given the opportunity. But I'm not. I'm not into like the lot of lot of the new ones. Uh, well, you heard it here first, Frank. I was uh, Nathaniel's into Monopoly uh, uh, and Scrabble. I think that's what he said. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, we've got to play a song. Um, but, you know, he's not into the new new board games. Not so much. Not, not so much. Here's the song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Bar Radio. And we're back. We're back. Uh, we're joined. We're back. We're not live. And we're not in the studio. Oh, I mean, get, it's been a year now almost, so... Get used to it. I think you've got used to it by now. Uh, we're joined now uh, with our returning... How many How many guests have we had that have returned? I reckon about three. I think that's even... That's pushing it. One of our few returning guests that have, that have forgiven us and have decided to come back again, we've got uh, author John Niven... Um, 
Hello, John. How you doing? Uh, uh, who, who are the other returning guests? What's what hallowed company am I? David Trent. Oh yeah. Who is uh, both of our friends? <laughs> who I think did it when someone dropped out. And um, and, oh, oh yeah. And we've had different variations of the drunk women who do the Drunk Women podcast. Uh, we had two of them one time and then uh, one of them again. And uh, it's, yeah. Fine, fine and company. And then Hannah George came in for your birthday. Yeah, you're in great company. You're with friends and successful podcasters. <laughs> Very good. So you're, um, you've got a, a new book out called uh, The Fuck It List. New, newish. It's out in paperback this week. Right. So, yeah, I um, came out in hardback nearly a year ago. Was that a year ago? God, time has just gone to mush, hasn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, it came out during the first week of lock, the first lockdown, March 2020. Great timing. Was, yeah, I, I know. It was a shocker. <laughs> I was meant to go to the Rough Trade Warehouse to sign a couple hundred copies for a competition. And it was literally, I think, the day they locked everything down and couldn't do it. So I wound up having to get loads of insert stickers delivered to me that had to sign the stickers and then send them somewhere and then they put them in the... It was a nightmare. <laughs> I, say, I say a nightmare, I'm sure, you know, Captain Tom had it harder or, or whoever. Um, not... I, I was... I, I made my very first ever uh, feature film and um, uh, I was in it and we were meant to be going to the Tribeca Film Festival in last March to... to oh, the my, yeah. And it's kind of like, that's been delayed. I think it's just going to be sort of like released, like under the radar now. And it'll oh, be boy. But, um, What's it called? What's it called, Nick? I'll look it, out for it. It's called Love Spreads. Um, oh, what? A Stone Roses movie? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Stone Roses. We filmed it at um, uh, Rockfield Studios in Wales. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, we filmed it, like, in 2017, I think. Um, and, yeah, it's got a good cast in it. Um, Very good. But... Uh, I, I, I actually had a movie shot during lockdown, which wrapped... Uh, we shot in Norway and wrapped in November, shot October, November, which I was amazed we got it done. We, we went out there for 10 days, me and my writing partner, Nick. We had to spend the first five in quarantine, and you know, think get COVID tested and all whatnot, but it's called the Trip. Stars Nimi Rapace and uh, um, Axel Hensel. Uh, mm. It's Netflix coming in sort of September October, I think. But yeah, so, I, was, I was I was amazed it got done. You know, um, everything was much slower and and more expensive. You know, the the budget went well because you know everybody had to have their own driver. You couldn't have cars. You know, all those sort of little costs. Escalated, but at least we got it in the can. You know, I was convinced that at any point somebody was going to get COVID and they'd have to shut the set. Well, that's, that's what's happened with like huge productions like Batman with mm. uh, Robert Pattinson. That closed down because Robert Pattinson got yeah. COVID. And... Well, well, the meltdown, the Tom Cruise meltdown on the yeah. Mission Impossible set that was shooting in Norway at the same time. Just before, I think they wrapped just before us because we've got some of their crew. Um, but yeah, it was, it was terrifying the thought of, you know, you could just one false move and the whole thing could be over. I was convinced, of course, when we went out to the set that we were going to end up bringing it from the UK <laughs> and, you know, the writers end up shutting the production down. <laughs> but what, now um, we're all right. What What were some of the differences between um, being in England and being in Norway then? They were much more on the... I mean, 
I travelled a wee bit in that period last year when we were kind of things were a bit relaxed. Uh, I went to Italy on holiday, sort of late August, and then I did a book tour away from Welsh in Germany in September, and then I went to Norway for the movie in October. And every one of those countries that you went in, temperature checked as soon as you get off the plane, then Germany and Norway COVID tested at the airport, got the results almost immediately. Um, Germany, you had to produce COVID documentation uh, whenever you checked into a hotel. Back to the UK every time. Heathrow, all right, mate, hi. Straight in. Not, not zero, nothing, you know? Just absolutely nothing. Uh, so, you know, you kind of see why we, we wound up where we did, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's mental, though. That's kind of like... I, I know. Not that we want to get into all the COVID stuff still, but... Yeah. Like, but fucking hell, that's like day one, isn't it? Just fucking... T- Check people at the airports. I I can't believe it. I, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a, a shout. Yeah. Every other country had a and it, but I really noticed in Italy too that you know uh, any restaurant or shop you went to get everybody's masked up, all the staff, all the customers. One time near the beach, I'd just gone to get whatever water or ice cream and forgotten to bring my mask, and I, I'd forgot completely. I just went to step into the shop and let everyone in there sort of held their hands up and went, "Oh no 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 no!" You know. You can't come in. And then you, again, you come back here and it's like, you know, in any given supermarket, there's half a dozen people. It's a, it's a personal choice. I walked past um, I walked past a Chinese restaurant the other day. I do, like, uh, every night I go for a walk around the block. Mm. And I walked, uh, walked past the Chinese restaurant. There was a woman that was stood outside the Chinese restaurant with a mask on, on the other side of the pavement, like, give, keeping the whole pavement clear. Mm. And then inside there was one guy chatting to his mate uh, that was sat in the actual kind of waiting area. Mm. And he he had a mask on, but his mate didn't. And I was just like thinking, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's like, it's a little bit like um, people sort of like, it's a bit like religion in a way. It's kind of like, well, you can kind of believe in it or you, or you don't believe in it, but we're not going to hold it against you. Yeah. You're still my mate. Even yeah. if it's just sort of like, what's the thought process? What's the guy with the mask thinking chatting to his mate indoors in this tiny little waiting area in a Chinese restaurant. It's just nuts. To who's just not wearing a mask. Yeah. You... I'm getting more, um, I'm getting less tolerant when I see people without one or I saw a guy a few weeks ago in the petrol station. I had to, you know, it was an essential visit. But I'm masked, I'm in and out as quickly as I can. There's a guy a few behind me in the queue, turn around and see no mask on, proudly. That kind of expression that they have on their face, that kind of defiant, yeah, a little bit nervy, noidy. And he's, he stands in front of the newspaper, it's a wall of newspapers that day saying, NHS at breaking point, record cases, and stand in front of it, just proudly unmasked. I'm like, what the hell gets all of these people's fucking heads? I think that's, you know, I think part of that attitude, I suppose this is this is getting on to one of the things that's in your, your new book, though, right? It's that kind of almost entitled, um, in your book, it's set in America, and it tends mm. to be sort of Trump supporters. But I guess it's that emboldened idea, isn't it, that seems to be now of, of people kind of expressing their, their politics through their actions. And rather than yeah. this thing of once upon a time, this thing would be quite... Private, I guess. But well, now- yeah, what, what, the, what the book sort of deals with a bit that ties into what we are just talking about with COVID is that um, you'd have to kind of call it the Putinization of the West where you've reached a place where what's truth, really? How can you know anything? 
Yeah, I reckon this and you reckon that, and you know that's just our differences of opinion. And it's kind of it's dangerous. Like, you know, you, the whole thing that, that I tried to satire, you know, the novel as it's set in two thousand twenty-six, uh, and in, in America with the assumption that Trump did two terms and then Ivanka has become president, she's halfway through her first term. So it's like America after a decade of of Trumpization, if you will. Uh, and what ha- what would have happened? Like what has happened, and it might not be reversible even where we are now, is that you get the kind of smart end of the population, the college educated thirty percent or so, who, you know, they're smart and they can read quality sources and probably have a handle on what's going on. You get the bottom sort of thirty percent who are just the lunatics. You know what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables, the capital stormers. You know, but more worryingly, in the middle ground, you've got a bunch of people that kind of end up going, well, they say this and they say that. How do you know what's true anymore? This assault on the notion of what's agreeable sanity, you know, that, that I'm not sure is ever coming back. So yeah. one of the things the book was kind of about is kind of what did a country look like after 10 years of that where people can kind of choose to believe what they want, you know? I think that a lot now. I always think, like, like something like Twitter seems to be two sides that are like it's like the immovable object and the um, what is it the unstoppable yes, immovable object. It's just like it's you're, you're never going to agree. But I also think Twitter in itself, it's still even though it has millions of people on the platform, it's not talking to the general public at all. It's it's sort of two quite small groups really talking to each other, and it's how <laughs> both those groups influence the actual mainstream. Yeah, like that's what's actually the the real mainstream isn't. They're not on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You look at the you look at the stats, and I think it's something like you know eighteen or thirteen percent of UK adults have who have used it at all, let alone yeah. regularly. But yeah, as you say, it kind of it ends up dominating in other ways, you know. And it influences the press and everything. But it's it's essentially a lot of it's quite a small number, really. But it feels like, and I'm on it. I'm on it, and it feels like this is the world, but it isn't. Yeah. It isn't what but, people think. And. Not just one of the things that I, that I do in the book is, you know, um, on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, I, I can't. I try to. You'll see a post that's kind of a fairly, a fairly reasonable statement, mm-hmm. and sometimes you click into the replies and you just see all these insane trolls and bots. You know, just it was something you think, how could you disagree with that? But sure enough, here are thousands of people who completely disagree with it. And half the time, and there's a bit in the new novel where this is kind of satirised, where the main character ends up having this days-long Twitter argument about gun rights, but with this guy who just seems to come back in seconds with, like, links, articles, all this bogus sort of information. And his daughter finally puts it to him, you're arguing with somebody in a factory in St. Petersburg. You're arguing with a guy paid, not just a guy, a team of guys, you know. One of them's clocking off 8 o'clock, the next one's taking it up. But, you know, it's you're arguing with shifts of, of people. So I, 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 and I don't know if you saw that video that did the rounds last week of when people get so inflamed with bogus information. It was a guy and it was a couple trying to take their relative out of a hospital where they get, and the doctor's going to them, he is late state. This man is an old guy. He will die of COVID within 72 hours of you taking him home. You, if you take him out, you go, oh yeah, well, I'll prove that then, prove it. 
but I'm a doctor. I'm telling you, here are his symptoms. Here's his, you know, oxygen levels. Here's all that. Yeah, what is COVID then, mate? Define COVID for me. And they'll try to remove it. He's like, oh, I'm a free man on the land. That that all he's coming out with all this bogus legal jargon. And you think these are doctors? Yeah. <laughs> and so you reach the point where um, the mad crap I've read in Facebook equals your medical degree. Yeah, that's yeah. the ultimate distillation of that where we are now. And you're like, How exactly. You and people stood outside hospitals saying it's they're, they're empty. And in yeah. the background, you can see the chain of ambulances in and out, and queues of ambulances. And there's people going, "No, oh, there's no one in there. No one uh, in there. It's fine." It's like the other, the old um, H.L. Mencken quote from the 1920s, where he said, um, "One day, you know, democracy will become so perfected to reflect the will of the people that an outright moron will sit in the White House." And so, which we've just had, obviously. But you look now at stuff like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, the, the kind of things that she's said. And you're like, how can that be? How can how can somebody like that be an absolute full lunatic conspiracy theorist be elected to represent people? So, uh, sometimes my big fear is that um, the, the kind of... I, I look at the, the book that I wrote, you know, the hardback was out nearly a year ago and I wrote it nearly two years ago. And I think I didn't go far enough. We could have gone a lot further satirically that, you know. Well, it is. It feels like it's funny to read it because I read it this last week in preparation for this and it, and it feels like, and, and having having now come to the end of that kind of Trump era and you think, oh, that must be weird, having written this kind of Trump era satire that's come to an end. But then you think, well, actually it isn't. And, it, and when you're reading it, it sort of feels like it's in that kind of almost... Paul Verhoeven, Robocop world, and then you go, oh, actually, that is what we lived through. That That's true. Yeah. You know, Robocop is a documentary almost. It's like... I don't think that stuff, Trumpism, for what a bit of is going anywhere. I think it's only going to get worse. Um, and, you know, you'll end up with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene that you're looking at and you're sort of pining for the refined, sophisticated days of Trumpism. Well, <laughs> it's been a... When you when you saw the inauguration and then George W. Bush showed up, and it was kind of like, oh, I remember George W. Bush, who I hated and was universally loathed as being you know, a fascist animal. It was comforting to see him. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Suddenly <laughs> looks like a sort of pillar of reasonability. Absolutely, it, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's crazy, and, and of course, Taylor Green is the the worst of the worst. Is one of the few that Trump's actually been reaching out to, talking to. Bigging up and you know inviting to Mar-a-Lago, so it's just you know uh, terrifying that you know who I think we all hoped that you know he'd lose the election and we'd turn the page and uh, people are gradually realising it's not going to be that simple. Oh, I'll quite you the fact that he's out of office now. The fucker is off. Sorry, can we on this program? Yeah, yeah. and that, that he's off Twitter. It, you know, there's it, a little piece there, a little you know for for a while. It, Peace is the right word, right? Because there's a lack of noise about it. Mm. I, I think I you had the noise of it for so long. But I, I find myself saying it like every 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 few days, and I'll be like, I haven't thought about him in 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 three days. You know? Yeah. Whereas I was obsessed with it every single day, all day, especially in lockdown. It was kind of like I, I would I'd I'd go online and I'd watch uh, Star Wars news. And uh, Donald Trump news. Yeah, and, the, the, uh, 
<laughs> there was a there was a five year period where I, I think he must have found his way in to almost every dinner party lunch conversation pub, you know, just it, it literally was like shit cloud that infected the whole globe's consciousness. Anyway, you know, he could yeah. not get get away from it, and I think a lot of that stems from for people like yourself to be probably um, this kind of feeling of impotent rage that it's happened. I remember I was at primary school, I was about 11, and we used to have a class quiz every week where I sort of had one hour half of the classroom would have a quiz with the other half of the classroom. And we, my team usually always won it. One week we get done. I think it was quite, you know, there was questions about the, legitimacy of the actual results. <laughs> we got it done. And I remember the thickest... I, would, I should change her name. Let's call her Karen. Let's go, who was like the thickest girl in the class, dancing about and sort of taunting me because they'd who'd never answered the question right in her life. And I remember this feeling of sort of impotent rage that was sort of beaten, bested by the densest girl in the school, which is too much. And that's kind of what it felt like with Trump in the White House. Like this, this idiot... Only celebrated by idiots had somehow won the highest political office in the world, and you just had to suck it up. And I think that powered a lot of fury and obsession. You know, did you take any comfort from that idea, though, that even you know by the end of it, almost I, I think had the storming of the Senate not happened, you wouldn't have had people in on the Republicans turning against him in such a kind of public way right at the end. Which no, I, you. And, and even, and it, they're all, but they're already trying to sweep it under the carpet. They're all kind of trying to go, yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a unpleasantness a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, let's let's move on. You know, uh, they're already, you know, not that many have come right out and nailed the cards to and said this was appalling. You needs to be, you needs to be done for it. You know, I think you're only talking about a handful, five or six that have gone right. that far. A lot, a lot of them are just trying to keep their heads down, or indeed saying, yeah, you know, they're openly saying we shouldn't impeach them. Someone, sorry. Someone bought timber so that they could build the gallows. Yeah. <laughs> so they must have. They must have cut the wood. They must have had a trial run at home in their garden. They must have bought the tools. Do you know what I mean? Someone bought a noose, and yeah. they're all singing "Hang My Pence." And you go, "We've well, made something that could actually do that." It's that mad level of premeditated hatred and rage, it's very hard to comprehend. I remember the first time I ever went to um, Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in 1994. It was just before the Good Trade Agreement when it was still, you know, the border was a whole thing. And we drove from Dub Dublin to Belfast. And as we came into Northern Ireland, you started seeing all these roundabouts that were just huge concrete roundabouts in the middle of nowhere that were painted in Union Jacks in, in, the, sort of, in the Loyalist areas. The driver, I'm like, who, who does that? Surely the council does it. And he's like, no, no, the, the, the fellas do it, you know, they get up in the night. And I'm like, just try to imagine a guy getting up at two o'clock in the morning, out the bed, he sort of shares his wife, his kids are sleeping. Yeah, I'm just, I'm off to paint a roundabout, a Union Jack and a roundabout, because I hate Catholics. I'm like, it's just, you know, your guy, you know, he's going to the hardware store and getting lumber in two before, and I'm building a gallows to take to Washington to, you know, in case we get any, you know? it's hard to relate to, but I think partly like I'm I'm 41, and you think, God, you just I grew up in this really relatively peaceful time, so it, it feels almost it's alien a lot of this stuff. It's so baffling that the world's kind of you, you sort of had this weird, quite almost like 
historically, I guess, quite a, um, an unusual length of time of kind of peacetime and yeah. everything was quite positive and, you know, growing up in teenage in the kind of 90s and everything's all kind of going the right way and everything's kind of, everything's sort of looking a bit hopeful. Yeah. Then you suddenly just enter this new era where everything's so kind of dark and bleak and yeah. you know, a lot of those kind of, you know, you had this sort of, the, the the kind of sort of stuff I missed a bit where you get a lot of that kind of Reagan era satire. It almost felt in the nineties that well none of that came to pass. And then he mm. just sort of comes back with a vengeance and you've got that kind of Yeah. Well, what, well what's really crazy, I, I watched a lot of the um late night talk shows, American talk shows, and so they all very liberal and they all do their open monologues. And, you know, part of the thing that gave Trump his power in the first place was put no one taking him seriously. No one yeah. took him as a real threat. And then he's come out of office, and one of the things he said as he was leaving was, you know, um, you know, the Trump brand will be back at some point. The implication being it will be one of his kids, if not him, directly. And then all of a sudden, all of the late-night talk show hosts are sort of, like, taking the piss out of him for, like, saying, oh, and he said that the Trump... The Trump name will be back in, uh, yeah. in power or in office or, or up for a kind of um, uh, election. Yeah. And they're instantly going back to sort of like taking the piss out of him and treating him like he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. And it's kind of like... But I think the old trope about it was that kind of uh, the liberal elite took him literally but not seriously, whereas his fan base took him seriously but not literally. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I, I in, the, in the novel, in the book, I sort of, uh, I kind of went down the route at that point when I was beginning to write it two, two and a half years ago, I think Ivanka would be the natural successor, successor to him, that he he's clearly her favourite and he clearly favoured her at events. And um, at that time, I was thinking she could conceivably play better to people in the middle ground. But I don't think we've got many people in the middle ground now. Now I think if we're starting the novel now, it would be Don Junior. I'd use as the sort of as the, as the one he he groom because he's just pure red meat for the base. He's just pure maga, just fire up the crazies, you know. Um, mm. Whereas I, I don't get me wrong, I think Ivanka Trump is every bit as malignant and, and evil in her own way. But. Um, I think that kind of idea, that kind of a moderating influence, it's like, well, forget that. We know where we are now. The battle lines are, are properly drawn. You know, and, and the terrifying thing, you know, even fully knowing what it was in November, just gone, 75 million people still thought, yeah, it's the guy for me. Let's do it. Yeah. But so when he left and they played uh, YMCA, <laughs> people, which is kind of like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, but how much of that do you think is kind of, like, deliberate and him kind of, like, putting out stuff that is ridiculous for people to grab a hold of while I, the real I, work is all of the evil shit underneath it? I, I don't think he's really capable of work in any sense, evil or not. I think he's just spectacle and show and wants to be... I initially probably wanted to be popular and was mystified that he wasn't more popular amongst certain segments of population. The YMCA thing, I spent a long time trying to comprehend. I think it started because they were singing M-A-G-A, they were doing the MAGA thing to YMCA, 
uh, was kind of why it took off. So it was like kind of hardcore alt-right gag that we didn't, I didn't really get at first. And, but it just, it's just, it just always looked so bizarre <laughs> standing there pumping these tiny little fists to the village people. It's <laughs> surreal. Just as it was about to get on Air Force One for, like, the last time, just before the inauguration, you know, the 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 drumbeat kicked in, and you think, he's not. And then he left the world stage. <laughs> and the plane, the, the plane actually took off. The wheels left the tarmac in the last notes of my way. It was just so... <laughs> what are you going to... What a tub. But, you know, um I keep hoping, you know, he's 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 got his what mid seventies now and terrible diet and overweight. I'm just praying that some rogue blood clot does for him at some point soon. You know, it would uh, it would be fitting. In your book, your character Frank Brill, what's what's kind of interesting about it? He's so it's it's sort of a revenge story, isn't it? But it's, it's almost that kind of. I guess again, he's got that kind of rage of someone who I guess would in normal times feel like power is outside, power is kind of um, unreachable, mm. and sort of decides that he's going to take his revenge on all the various people that have wronged him in some way um, yeah. after he finds out he has cancer. Mm. But I guess another strength of that character is he's presented in it. He isn't, it's not a kind of, it's not a liberal revenge He's sort of seen as this sort of floating voter, essentially, isn't he? He's yeah. Not, he, he wouldn't describe himself as a Democrat either, would he? He's sort no, of, no, of the middle. One of the hopefully quite shocking revelations like, towards the end of the book is you find out that he voted for Trump the first time. And that, in the way that I guess a lot of people did in 2016, it was just a kind of, well, you know, things about let's give the tree a shake, you know, see what mm-hmm. happens, you know, can this guy be any worse than anybody else? That kind of thinking, you know, Frank thought a little like that. And obviously comes to enormously re- regret it. Initially, the first people he kills are sort of, there's a few personal scores, vendettas. But... As I sort of outlined the book, it became clear that you'd have to sort of have a sense of escalation and also that he wasn't killing people for no reason. The, the political, there is a personal reason for his political targets and that, you know, he's, he's, lost, his, he lost, he's lost, lost his wife and son in a school shooting and he lost his daughter from a previous marriage um, due to a badly performed backstreet abortion because in 2026 abortion's illegal at this point. Um, so it was kind of that was the challenge was to tie in as his targets escalate from people in his past to it's, you know um, these political targets that he doesn't know personally but who have impacted his life and also it had to be pretty you know you wanted to, if this guy's going to go and kill a bunch of people for the reader to have sort of sympathy for him it was important that you sort of thought well you know what if that happened to my kids I could see how you might get there. Mm-hmm. The, the initial idea for the book um, was years ago, like 10, 15 years ago or more, my friend, I've got a friend, Alan, in Scotland, who I've known since primary school, and he's one of these guys, he's a, he's a, he's a lunatic, in the nicest possible way, but he says just the most outrageous things as if it's complete common sense, and if you turn around and go, what? He's like, oh, you don't think that? And we're, talk, we're in the pub once, and we found out a friend of ours had cancer. And we're, you know, it was sad, there's about half a dozen half a dozen of us having a drink. And then I would say, oh, well, you know what you know what you do, John, if you get that, that diagnosis. And I was like, 
and thinking, oh, swim with the dolphins, go to Tibet, do the, you know, your bucket list stuff. And he goes, no, 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 you've got a list, right? You've got five or six folk that have really fucked you over in your life. And you get a shotgun, right? And you turn, ding dong, you ring the bell, they answer the door, like, they know. As soon as they see you, they know why you're there. They, yeah, they blow them away. And like, we were pissing ourselves at the thought that this would be Alan's plan if we found out his cancer was to go in this killing rampage. <laughs> and then, uh, I kind of, that tucked away somewhere at the back of my head. I thought, that's quite a funny idea for a book or a movie. And then it wasn't quite enough on its own. There had to be a sort of, and then as the Trump era was unfolding, I thought, I quite want to write about where this might land up in the future Mm -hmm. and 10 years from now. And so though the idea of this guy who gets the cancer diagnosis in a future America after a decade of Trumpism, that became the, the novel. Well, I guess it's because he's like you know he's he's presented as this kind of very reasonable guy. He's not like he's not mad, and yet as soon as this happens, yeah, he sort of has this almost like a a switch flicks, doesn't it? And he's like, okay, well that's the that's yeah. the answer. And do you think that's like I was saying almost about the the mainstream on Twitter? Do you think it's this? Do you think that we're now almost being forced into this idea of we are ourselves becoming more extreme? Or we feel we have to be. Like it's like being having a reasonable discussion about it isn't 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 working. So you have yeah, to go through these extremes. I don't, well, it's a bit like um to hark back to what we talked about a second ago. Like how do you have a reasonable discussion with somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Hmm. I mean, I, I, I see this in Twitter a lot and I don't like myself for it, but it's it's difficult not to do. You just You'll see, like, for instance, other week, was a, I wouldn't name the name, but it was a young comedian girl I follow who's very funny, and, and she'd said something about Brexit, and I, some, I noticed she did 400 replies. And you look at them, like, that's a lot of replies. You dig in, of course, a pack of Brexit ladies have swarmed her, and it's just the most uh, horrible, outrageous stuff that they're saying. And then you do a thing of clicking into some of these guys' profiles, and invariably, uh, some football club is up backdrop with, you know, Union Jack, uh, are the guys got set Oakley's on football shot proud dad in the bio always yeah. and it's you drill into the feeds and it's just a torrent of racism and just garbage you know and it's you know you think what kind of reasonable discussion are you gonna have with that guy you know nothing so I'll guilty of and you know I'll get banned for this routinely I'm suspended every few months so I'll just write some outrageously abusive reply. And copy and paste it to about 30 or 40 of them. Just da, 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 da. <laughs> and then, of course, you get, you know, so I'm like a bot myself, I suppose, sometimes in that regard. But that, that, that's where you end up. You think there's no conversation to be had with people that are that far down a sort of right mm-hmm. way. Well, that's it. I kind of, I'm the same, really. I feel like you can kind of get drawn into this stuff. But, like, I know I'm kind of reasonable. I don't want to get drawn into these kind of extremes. And I always think, like, what's the point? Like, Twitter as a kind of platform is mad because it's designed to be however many hundred characters it is. You can't even get an argument. You can't form an argument in that, like, tiny space. And yet that's what, it, that's what it's become. It's become this little place where you can only be very kind of binary answers to things because you've only got a little bit of room. So you're basically saying, generally, I think this. There's no room to say Unless you want to end up with a sort of 142-part thread. Yeah. Which is just like, oh, God, really? We're going to read all that? <laughs> but that's the thing. It's, uh, I mean, just to... 
I, me and Nat used to, Nat used to, but we write film reviews of just, we keep it, all the films where we watch on, um, on Twitter. And each one has got to, each review has got to be however many characters you've got, including the title and the director and the year. And I've got very complicated feelings about a lot of films. And I watched The Last Jedi this week, which I have incredibly complicated feelings for. But you can't discuss, like, something as lightweight and disposable as Star Wars or, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, Mm. you have complicated feelings about it, but you have to kind of, like, fit it into this um, format that just does not allow anything more complicated other than, uh, yeah, it's all right here and it's bad there, or Mm -hmm. I hate it or I love it. And yeah, it's it's not a yeah it's not I, a platform that that you can that you can have anything particularly sophisticated. Yeah. And, and it's a thankless task anyway. Inevitably, all you have to do is say, "I quite like this film," and you will have fifty replies saying it's garbage, and here's why you're wrong to like it. And yeah. I'm like, who, who lives? Like That's what I, I, I never do. If anybody says they like something, even if it's literally, I love sex life to the potato men. I'm like, fair enough, mate. Go with God. Glad you enjoyed it. I'm not going to spend my life trying to convince you that why you like the thing you like is bad. It's just, why? But also it's a thing where you, people aren't just allowed to have their opinion. It's got to be, well, sometimes, I don't know, then it gets complicated as well because sometimes people's opinions are absolutely... Um, I- I remember when I joined it, it was my friend, the columnist, Indian Night, who I joined in 2011, which a lot of people knew had been on for a year or two at that point. And Indy would be saying, oh, you should do it, it's great fun. It's, and it was back then, it was sort of, compared to the cesspit it is 10 years later. Um, but she said to me, I was like being at a really nice cocktail party and there's, yeah, there's some boring people and there's some annoying people, but you just choose to talk to the the fun people and it's great and it was kind of what it was like back then but then gradually you realise that you might be having this nice cocktail party but there's a door over here and if you go through it it's a it's a flat roof pub the size of Kaleo filled with lunatics going bananas you know, now and again you'll open that door and peek in you go Jesus Christ and now and again the guys in that party sort of creep out and infect your part it's, uh, so you know it's not what it was a, a decade ago as, a, as something like the fuck it list, does that has that had interest as like a movie screenplay or is that we've something had, you have to yourself? We've had two or three calls about it. It's quite um, a couple of them are people now. If, if you get any traction with the season one, they want to know what, what, what so what's season two going to be, and I'm like. Uh, there isn't one. It's a fairly, it's a fairly I won't, no spoilers, but it's a fairly end-stopped story. Um, so that that can be a stumbling block if people want to know that there's returning characters or, you know, if you're going to make a first one. I, I remember talking to the producer, or the meeting recent producer, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't need, but a very successful US show. And um, he said that, you know, the season, first season was based on a novel. And he said, you know, this was the early days of Netflix, I think, of streaming. And they said, we never thought, you know, we thought that's it. And, of course, as soon as the figures hit a certain point, whoever the producer, the broadcaster was, got us in and said, OK, so it's season two going to be? And they're like, there isn't one. And they're like, guess again, mate. <laughs> Check your contract and guess again. There's going to be a season two. Just, you know, let, if you want to be involved, then give us your best shot. If you don't, we're making it without you. And, you know, you, you see these diminishing returns sometimes, don't you, when people feel they need to have to come back. 
Why not? Um, the third, the third season of The Sinner was the first one that off-roaded off of... I think the first two seasons were based on novels. Mm. The third one was like, we've run out of books. And that happened with... Um, we were talking about Game of Thrones before you came. Yeah. And with Game that, of Thrones as well. That, like, we've run out of books. He can't write them fast enough. Yeah, that happened there, didn't it? I mean, I've, 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 I do have a couple of my novels which I think would make great recurring returning seasons because there's a, a milieu and a pool of characters that can go on. But not a couple that wouldn't, you know, that are more maybe movies to my mind, you know, standalone things. And do, you, and do you think of them in that way? You were saying you're just producing this movie in in Norway. It just feels like. Do you, so, do you think of them very differently? Like yeah, some, uh, yes, yeah, some ideas come to you and you think that's a movie, and some you think that's a book. And there's been a couple over the years that I liked and that were originally screenplays that would. You know, it's difficult to get a movie made, as I'm sure you guys know, that weren't happening and that I then turned into a novel, and which were then optioned for movies. So it's kind of, uh, sometimes feels like doing the work twice, but you do get paid twice, you know? Yeah. But also, I guess it's like, you know, in a thing where, I guess, movie producers maybe aren't necessarily the most imaginative people, and once they've got it in a book and they read it, they go, oh, right, yeah, it's like a film, this. <laughs> it very much is that. <laughs> I mean, what is, Sunshine Cruise Company, which is a novel I wrote about five years ago, five or six years ago, that started like that was a film script that did the rounds and just no, people liked it, but they were quite pulling the trigger on it. And then I novelised it, and then oh, I basically got a call from quite a big priest going, oh, I cried laughing on the plane, we've got to make a movie of this. And I was like, yeah, you probably read the script <laughs> two years ago and just, yeah. So, it's, yeah. But it's also, it's a creative thing because when you're writing screenplays, they're really only blueprints to make movies from. And if the movie doesn't happen and you do that a few times in a row, it gets frustrating creatively. I was talking to everyone else about this because he, he does similar to me. He does a bit of screenwriting and then goes back and writes novels. And a novel is it's a fully realised piece of art in and of itself. It doesn't need anything else to happen to it. So it's quite nice when you've kind of... I think out of all that in the last... I was working this out for a few the other day. In the last 10 years, I think I've worked in somewhere between 20, 25 feature scripts either original ones or rewriting or co-writing. And out of those two, I think six have become actual movies, which isn't actually a terrible batting average, you know, one in four or something, one in five. So, but it, it can get frustrating, you know, you, write a, you do a few projects that own none of them quite happen. Can you talk a little bit about your, um, your writing process? Um, so you had this idea for uh, the fuck it list, uh, like over 10 years ago. Mm. How do you decide what to work on? I assume, well, with me, I've got a lot of ideas all at once and they're all fighting for which one uh, takes dominance to I, that I sit down and actually work on and I end up not doing any of them, right? <laughs> so how do, you, how do you decide which one that you work on now? Why did you decide that the fuck it list was ready to write now? Um, well... As I said before, it's like a little bit of one idea. Usually it's in the back of your mind somewhere. In this case, for Alan's comment about getting a cancer diagnosis. And that will sometimes be buried in your head for years. Don't, Nabokov described the process as it starts as just like a throb somewhere back, at the back of your head. That finally you begin to think, oh, yeah, maybe I could, write a, I could maybe write an awful about that. In my case, it tends to have to meet another idea or maybe two, both, two or three ideas will sort of, you'll realise they can mesh together. 
And then that occasional throb of thought becomes a sort of recurring one. And then finally it'll reach a point in your head, you think, okay, um, I'm ready to try to read to write a book about this. Um, I do have other ideas in the meantime, but I, I work with, you know, I've written, I've written a couple of movies with Kat Moran, I've, I've worked with my screenwriting partner, Nick Ball. The trip, the one in Norway, I co-wrote with the director, Tommy Vercola, who did the Dead Snow Nazi zombie films and Hansel and, Hansel and Gretel, which Hunters have directed. So, and Tommy was a writer, and he, you know, he just had this one-line idea that he pitched me, and I spent a few days thinking about it and thought, oh, well, then we could do this, so. That was that was right in the beginning of the first lockdown. That's quite an interesting example because that was his idea that I added a bit to, and then we kind of thought, well, do we want to? Because lockdown had started, I could go to LA. He could come, and we thought, do we want to work this up to a pitch? And I said, why don't we just write it as a spec? You know, we're both locked down just now, so I, I wrote, I'd write five or six pages one day and send them to him, and he would write the next five or six. And we just uh, and this was in April last year, and we had a draft by June. And then we had a deal by September. We were shooting October, so that that was one of the fastest things I've ever been involved with. You know, um, were you working on uh, other stuff at that same time? Or yeah, kind of like a day on and a day off. What I usually do is, in terms of the working process, I always work in the morning on whatever book I'm working on at the time, whichever novel or. And then have lunch, and in the afternoon, I'll spend a couple of hours on whatever screenplay or screenwriting gig I've got going on. Um, the, I'm, I'm in the middle right now of the hardest thing book I've ever written, which is a sort of memoir about me and my brother. It's the first piece of extended piece of non fiction I've ever written. Um, my brother killed himself 10 years ago. Um, and it's kind of that question keeps coming back to me, but, you know, families who have two or three children and you'll, you'll raise them, you think, in exactly the same way and they end up just going down such very different paths in life and becoming completely different people. And it's just kind of an analysis. It's ended up being my sort of story as much as Gary's, or maybe even more so. Um, but that is just... I love writing a novel where you can just make shit up, but this has involved sort of a lot of research and thinking about dates and talking to some of his friends because there were periods where we weren't in each other's lives so much um, and trying to get the full picture. And it's just, I, know, I started this before the first lockdown even, so I've been on it about a year and a half now, and I'm just right now about a third of the way through the second draft, and it's just a mess. It's just, you know, um, it's that question of what's relevant and what's not relevant and what order does this need to go in and it's, it's, a, it's like swimming through treacle at the moment so Is that because I think you feel I'm, closer to it or you're closer to the material so it's, it's harder it's, I think it's partly because you feel a sense of responsibility because it's real stuff and also I mean to tell the story I mean you could write an entire book out of a weekend of a life let alone trying, in my case, 50 years of it, you know, and then Gary, 42, who died. So you're kind of weaving together two lives over four decades, you know, to try and tell this story. So there's just so much stuff. And, uh, you know, the first draft here is about 120,000 words long, which is, you know, I guess that'd be about a, um, 
500-page book, you know. Um, mind you, my friend Pete Ferris's book, Broken Greek, I thought it was a great memoir that came out last year. Um, Pete told me his first draft for that was about 250,000 words. They ended up getting down to about 150,000, which was 600 pages. And he only dealt with the first 13 years of his life with that book. So, um, Is the temptation yeah, just... to try and fictionalise it? Is, do you have that in the back of your mind going, oh, maybe if I just made it... I'd love, paid up, I'd have a bit more license. I'd love to be able to do that, but I just don't quite. It doesn't feel um, you know, you've got to kind of try and get it as close to the truth. And my sister, and my mum are going to read it, and you know, I've really a few friends who kind of have sent the odd chapter to that they kind of in, you know. But it's I, I've just had to resign myself to the fact. I've, also, I've published ten, but my first novel was two thousand five. And the fuck it lists the tenth. So I published ten novels in a fifteen year period, and I'm thinking I could stay. I might maybe I'll go a couple of years. I know what the next novel will be, but I don't think I'll start it for a couple of years. I'm going to just have to take as long as this book takes. But I, I think I reckon I'm still a year away from finishing it. So you know that's a lot. Two and a half, three years will be a long time for for me. You know, and in some ways, in some ways, I've been kind of writing bits of it since he died. You know. Um, I wrote a piece for the Observer three years after he died, and the kind of some of the roots of this book are, are in that piece. So it's been a long time gestating. And it's cause, as you said, you've written ten books in fifteen years, and is that is that because that's the speed you write them, or are there pressures from publishers? Do you have? Is there always someone going, "What's the next one? What's the next one?" Well, a bit of a bit of both. Um, my German is always more in my case for the next book than they are in, in Britain. Um, but I, I'm in a kind of funny middle ground and that I'm not a literary novelist because those guys would maybe publish a novel every four or five years or less. Um, and I'm not a genre novelist. You know, if you're a genre guy like um, you know, Ian Rankin or, or, or Alan Parks, you're kind of in a world where the, your fan base, they expect a book a year. You know, and Those guys write, write a book every, every year, which is a phenomenal sort of discipline that I sort of look at with awe. But for me, left to one devices, sort of, you know, 18 months feels about the right time frame, you know. It maybe be sort of four to six months writing the first draft, and then you leave it alone for a couple of months and go back to it and redraft, and then you get notes in from editors and agents. and this. That whole process takes about a year, so. So you're um, never writing to, I guess you're always writing to a deadline, but you're never... You don't feel that you have to get something done for a certain date, or you. I do like it, as John Coltrane said. Don't give me freedom, give me deadlines. I do quite like to know something has to be done by a certain point, you know. Um, but you know, so yeah, book deadlines are very, are flexible. You know, your publisher's really going to go. We're suing you for breach contract because you're eight weeks late delivering this. And was there ever kickback on just calling it the fuck it list? Because does that does that is that a problem with promoting? No, that was my that was my editor at Random Houses idea. Um, I, that was just a working title that I thought was quite a funny playing bucket list, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to call the book Frank's Wild Year. And uh, when it got delivered, and these conversations got on, he turned around and said, "No, everybody here much prefers the bucket list." And then I hadn't really, I, I, really, sometimes, you know, you have to listen to publishers and they say, we think this will work well, you know, in the cover. And they came up with this Ralph Steadman-ish book jacket and, you know, bullet holes sort of picking out the letters. And it looked great. And I kind of, okay. And then you don't think about it when the hardback came down out 
and I was doing all this stuff you know, on Radio 4 or Radio 5 or whatever, and I suddenly realised that I'd sort of had reached peak being that I'd written a book that they couldn't actually say the title. They couldn't even name the book. And then if you ever they had sort of dance around the well, I can't say the title, it rhymes with bucket and you know it's stuff oh, Christ, I've written a book and I can't even say the title in public. That jumped out at me straight away. I just sort of thought like must be a bit of a PR nightmare for people who are working for the publishers like I mean how do we I mean I guess it's all right on this, but yeah, to get it on um <laughs> Mainstream. Uh, oh, no, it, was, it was their idea. <laughs> I, had an, I had an album called Nick Helm is Fucking Amazing, and I went on, <laughs> I went on Sunday brunch to promote it. <laughs> and you can't, you, you're just there, and you can't say what it is, and you can't really describe what it's about, and then yeah, it's quite <laughs> being here. Um, Brilliant. <laughs> good. Um, we've come to the end of another hour chatting to you, John. Bloody hell. Um, I've got to uh, right. So we've got time for uh, to play our game. So can I hand? You, oh, so the fuck the fuck it list is coming out in paperback. Uh, now, now. this week, yeah, twenty eighth came out, yeah, Thursday. It's out now. So go and buy it. And uh, right, I'm going to hand you over to Nat now, and we're going to play uh, better or worse. Okay, I don't know if you remember this, John, but it's better or worse, and you have to say if the next person is better or worse than the person before, based on my opinion. To score points. So beginning with Mariah yeah, the, Carey. After the, so the person is better or worse than the person before. Yeah, based on what I think. Based on what you think. To score points. So beginning right. with Mariah Carey. Is Jim Carey better than Mariah Carey? Or worse? No. I think you think no. Nah, he's better. He's better. <laughs> is Jim start. Davidson better than Jim Carey? <laughs> no, what? It is worse. Is Jimi Hendrix better or worse than Jim Davidson? Better. He is better. Is Jimmy Cranky better or worse than Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> uh, what? He is worse. Is Ian Cranky better or worse than Jimmy Cranky? Worse. What? Worse. Is Ian McKellen better or worse than Ian Cranky? Better. better. <laughs> Is Kieran Knightley better or worse than Ian McKellen? Better? Worse. Oh. Is Joanna Lumley better or worse than Kieran Knightley? Better. 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 Is Carrie Fisher better or worse than Joanna Lumley? Better. Better. And is Gwyneth Paltrow better or worse than Carrie Fisher? Worse. Worse. That's a pretty good score, I reckon. What is it? He scored eight. Is that Uh, good? He's scored eight, John, which is not as good as Jim Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Lanford, Joseph Delaney with ten, David Baddiel, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, but as good as Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Leston, Eddie Head, David Hepworth, Jason Isaacs, and Simon West, Magical Burns, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kyre, and Miranda Rays, and Griffiths Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Wickham with eight. <laughs> and you're better than Richard Herring, James Kinn, Ludy Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, John, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Frank Hopper with six, and sad old Dave McLean with only five. Five. You are average as fuck, there. You are literally... Uh, <laughs> eight out of ten. You judge it that way, it's good. I just see one more right, doesn't it, to get up into the more higher yeah. echelons. Oh. You're there with uh, Susie Dent, but you're not You're not up there with the likes of... With Fadil. Eight seems to be average, which probably sums me up. That's fine. OK, well, if you can live with it, then then, then fine. <laughs> Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for coming on again, Jeff. No, guys, thank you for having me. It's been nice to be back.
Uh, yeah, good luck with your book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, come back, come back again when you when you finish the next one. Well, maybe come back and talk about this main one five years yeah, or yeah. whatever, whenever it's <laughs> finally done and out. Sure. Or if you just fancy a break, uh, come back. <laughs> if you come back in five years and it's still on Zoom, I'm going to be furious. <laughs> good point. Oh fucking hell! What if it's Zoom? Um, oh, okay, Jesus. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, hope you're all safe. Uh, wear a mask, wash your hands, and uh, uh, talk to you next week. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Right. Bye.